Let's pray together. Father, probably one of the greatest things that we can have is to be honestly present with another person. And one of the greatest gifts that we enjoy is to be honestly present with you. And so we invite you to meet us right where we're at, whatever place we may be, whether it is a time where we're celebrating or maybe just things are just kind of going the way they always have or maybe in a time of real difficulty, crisis, weeping and sorrow or maybe a mixture. Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit right now that you would take my words and that you would you would speak your heart into places that I could never reach, but only you can. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I have to say, I, I, um, someone said to me, you know, we were talking about how wonderful the weather is, and I just love it. And I, you know, I don't really have much to complain because I was in Florida for about a week here before this. But I did bring the nice weather. So just so you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, one of the wisest men that ever lived penned these words and and I had them read when I was in seminary and, and the professor kind of explained it briefly. But I love these words. They're found in Proverbs chapter thirty. There are three things that are too amazing for me. They're 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 really beyond my ability to grasp. And then he goes, No, four. There's four that I don't understand. And I'm glad he added the fourth one. There's four things that are just beyond what I'll be able to grasp intellectually and in other ways. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock. How do you, how do you know where that's going to go and how do you grasp? The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a maiden. Think about that. That's pretty funny. And I'm glad some of you find it that way, because I remember when I was in seminary and I was, they were explaining that, and he just talked about, man, when you look at guys, and he's looking at some of us guys, and you fall in love, and I was falling in love with Grace at that time, and I was doing crazy things. Like she was up in Thief River Falls at one point. I was in Chicago, and I would drive the whole way with just one break, get gas, and I'd do that in six hours. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> He was really eight. No, anyway. But the crazy, who can understand the ways, some of the ways of life that are just beyond our grasp? And one of those we're looking at is a tough question. How do you understand the ways of suffering and the presence of evil? And that creates a problem. How do you deal with the fact that a plane from Malaysia, Flight 370, is traveling and who knows where? It's beyond our grasp. Some of the wisest, most intelligent people are put on it, and we may even find it, but who knows? But deeper than where that plane landed is why and what's going on and people who in China who have lost loved ones who are in anguish or who can grasp the ways of people who are looking for loved ones, in, loved ones in, in Washington who have had this mudslide occur. I mean, those, what, how do you understand that? How do you understand some of the innocents who are being killed in Syria and what God is doing there, or, or the fact that some person took a knife to some 43 people and slashed 100 and some others? And what, what may, how, what, why? 
Solomon's point, there are some things beyond our intellectual capacity and the presence of evil poses one of these great problems and questions, not just for the Christian faith, not just for the Bible, but for all mankind and every worldview, every religious system has to wrestle with this. And it's beyond just intellectual. I mean, there are there is this real sense that it, for theologians, this is a knotty riddle to explain the existence of the presence of evil, the problem around that. How can a good and a loving and all powerful God allow suffering and evil? But beyond just a logical, philosophical and theological, you know, the difficulties that this presents and that, that is debated out of intellectual curiosity, because that's not what we're going to do today. It drives much deeper to the heart where you might be or have been or could be. Where you have to wrestle with the fact that you have come face to face, you have been touched by, you in your life in some way have experienced this. And how do you wrestle with this problem that this all loving, good God that is presented in Scripture could in any way allow for this to touch your own life? And no longer then is it an issue of debate, but it becomes a matter of faith. And in some cases, a lack of faith. And in some cases, a loss of faith. And for some people, it creates a problem of having any faith at all. And you may be in any one of those places. How can you believe and trust in a God who allows the innocent to suffer? What kind of God puts up with the, pres- with, with the presence of evil? And why doesn't he just immediately eradicate and punish the very first sign of the intention and thought that moves to an action that might hurt another? And I think about that and I go, oh man, if he did that, I'm out of the picture right away. Because I have intentions and thoughts that... It, Fruit is evil and hurt in someone's life. And I go, that, that's the problem. And then I go back and I go, what kind of God would allow, you know, would, would, would put up with the presence of evil? And then you have Jesus who looks at everybody at one point and goes, and those of you who are evil, he's looking at all the human race and saying, you know how to even give good gifts. And so we're classified even there. And then go one step further. How in the world could a God allow the innocent to suffer? And I think about the fact that here I am standing before you. And you know what? I have hurt people who have not deserved it. And so I think about it and I go, man, if God's going to do something with this question, I'm standing on some pretty shaky ground as I wave my fist. But it's a legitimate question, a good question. I wish I could just say, turn to your Bible. Everyone grab your Bible, open your Bible, the second Hezekiah 2. And let's see what Scripture has to say about this, but I, I can't for two reasons. One is, as some of you are laughing already, there is no book named Hezekiah. And secondly, you can read the Bible from cover to cover again and again, looking for a simple and clear answer to the question of the ultimate origin of evil, and you will not find one. And I'm not talking about the, you know, how evil entered into human life and experience, which is found in Genesis 3. But I mean, you'll not be able to discover the ultimate origin of evil. We're, we're simply told that Satan, this chief angel, due to pride, became evil. And there's no further explanation. Theologian Christopher Wright says, Many people try to come up with an answer for themselves, dragging in whatever bits of the Bible they think will support their theory. But it seems to me that when we read the Bible asking God, where did evil come from? How did it originally get started? God seems to reply, this is not something I intend 
to tell you. In other words, the Bible compels us to accept the mystery of evil. Now, I want you to realize that when when Wright is saying this and when we say the Bible compels us to accept evil, he's not saying in this sense that you accept it as some alternative world positions will do. Some positions will actually try and, and, and somehow make sense of evil and integrate it into their world system. They'll talk about the fact that there's this good power and this evil power and they're equal and you'll get all kinds of different, you know, evil's just some kind of illusion, don't believe it. There's all kinds of different systems, but what the, the Word of God says really clearly is <clears throat> I'm not calling you to accept it, I'm calling you to do this, to resist and reject evil whenever you see it because it really wasn't meant to be a part of creation. There's no necessary part of it within the the created order of God. God created it good. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us its origin in the sense of, of the stuff beyond that. It just says it came. And then when you think about that and you, and you read God's word and you, you begin to deal with this, what I want to do in just the time we have this, this morning is to look at three things. And the first is the problem of evil. And just to explain it, why is it a problem with regard to what the Christian faith has to say? And then I want us to take just a moment to talk about the purpose of it. If it's here, what's its purpose? Could it be even a purpose? And then the last part. So I just have to say up front, someone said to me in the first service, you know, I really it was real tough staying with you. The first point I said, I told you it would be. Because we'll get to this third point, which is the power of your choice in the light of evil. And we're going to talk about that because that's going to be really important. So hang with me. If you, the first part, of, you're going to have to think hard. But we'll get to a point where maybe it'll be more stories and be fun and, and you can just enjoy it, okay? I'll call you back in. I did that in second, first service. I'll call you back in when it's time to do that. The problem of evil. So what is the problem? It's, it's really pretty simple. It's this simple question of how can an all-powerful, all-loving, good God allow evil and suffering? The northern Irish theologian Alistair McGrath states it is this way. The problem raised by the existence of evil or suffering is usually stated in terms of three propositions. So now we, you know we're getting kind of to this theological math kind of sense. Now here's the propositions, philosophical. God is omnipotent and omniscient. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, proposition one. Second one, God is completely good. And the third, there is suffering and evil in the world. The point is this, these statements are inconsistent. To declare that God is all-powerful and to declare that God is good aren't consistent with the aspect that there's evil existing in the world. And so McGrath continues and says all three statements cannot be true at one time and the same time. The reality of suffering evil cannot be denied. This is how the argument goes. It is an experiential reality. Everyone has experienced it. So, therefore, either God is not all-powerful, nor is God good, and so the logical coherence seems to unravel, and a fatal logical flaw has been exposed in Christianity that can't be that this God is all-powerful, this can't be that God is good if there is evil and suffering. And then McGrath asks, or has it? Is it possible that God can be both all-powerful and completely good, even though evil is present in the world? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, and there's a couple of books that are really, I think, important to read around this if you're really wanting to struggle with this. One is by C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. The other one is what I've kind of given as the subtitle of this series, Tough Questions, The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. I think they're both really good in their own right, in their own way. Excuse the pun. Um, right. Anyway. Okay. Um, 
Lewis says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. That's one of the lines of thought here. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do that which he wished. That's kind of the logic. But the creatures are not, obviously not happy. Therefore, God lacks either the goodness or the power or both. There is the problem of pain or suffering or evil in the simplest form. Now, stay with me. Because Lewis goes on and he says, look, that all sounds well and good. Now, let's think. Let's get deeper. Let's drive deeper to a deeper understanding. When you say something like God's all powerful and all good, what do we mean by those words? So what does it mean to say that God can do whatever he likes? See, once God has opted, according to what Lewis says, to do certain things, according to what the Bible says, once he has opted to behave in a certain manner, then other possibilities get excluded. So my father, when I was younger, it was like about third grade. We were living in Crystal, Minnesota, and he was at work, and we were the terror all day. And, and my, I remember my mom calling, I have an older brother, two years older, calling my dad during the day, and, and the word back from my mom was, Tonight, we usually had a family night where we'd either maybe go to a movie or do something fun as a family. He said, tonight, and we were planning to go to a movie, if you guys don't get quit it, we're not going to the movie. That was a direction. And so we came home, and we still hadn't been good. He gave us one more chance. We went through dinner, and we were a pain. And he looked at us, and he said, we're not going to the movie. And we went, What? Well, see, he had, he had made a decision which, in a sense, excluded another opportunity. He had made a decision. He said, guys, you have the opportunity to choose something that could be different, but it may not happen if you choose this. Here's what Lewis is saying. When it comes to the word all-powerful, if you choose to say God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire a meaning because we prefix to them two other words, God can. Just because you put God can in front of it, you still have to define what do you mean and what does that actually look like. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. My dad couldn't do them both. Not because his power meets an obstacle, not that my dad could, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about it with God. Does that make sense? Now, that's deep. I'm asking you to think. But Lewis points out that suffering cannot be regarded as arising from a lack of divine omnipotence or his all-powerful nature. Far from it. If God creates a material universe and gives creatures freedom of action, suffering falls on the matter of course. That's possible because they've been given free will. Having exercised his omnipotence in creating a universe, endowing his creatures with freedom, he cannot block the outcome of that free universe, which could result in suffering if there's choices that are made that move in that direction. Lewis, quote, says, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. God actually almost did that at one point. He created the world, and it was spinning out of control out of the sin that happened in Adam and Eve to a point where there's a movie that's out called Noah. It really, you need to read the Bible and, you know, enjoy it as an entertainment, but the Bible tells you the true story. 
And what happens is God at a certain point goes, it's gone so evil, it's like a fruit. If you see, you know, like you have a banana that's just completely spoiled, what do you, what do you normally do with it? You, how many of you, you just kind of throw it away? If there's, I mean, but if there was even just a little piece of it, would you take time and would you cut that little piece out? God did that. He was, it says, was considering throwing it all out, but he cut it out. And like Peter said last week, Tove is a seed that grows. And, and so he takes that little bit, that little seed of what's in human race, and he wants to continually take that which has gone bad, that which he is, is moving in the direction he wasn't. And he says, I've come to redeem it, to restore it, to bring it to a new place, because I want a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what the Christian faith has to say. But you also have to understand goodness. See, a good God is looking at this and going, I'm not going to preserve that which is evil. In fact, he rejects it and constantly is resisting it and is giving opportunity in time for that to be cut out. And eventually it will be. That's what the word of God says. Goodness is the natural outcome and expression of the love of God. So is suffering consistent with a loving God? Is this good God? How does it fit into this? And he basically says, you've got to think deeper then. Because when we think of good, we think of God who is just like this big grandpa in the sky who's just kind of, oh, you know, just do your own thing. It doesn't matter what you become. It doesn't, you know, my, if you were to operate that way with your kids, you wouldn't be a good parent, would you? How many of you are parents? Raise your hand for a second. I mean, a lot of you should be. I'm not talking about young ones. Any, okay. When your child at one point stood at the checkout counter and was crying for another piece of candy when they already had like four, how many went, oh, I've got the power and I'll be a really good parent because I want to make them happy? See, this is the conditions in the world in which we live. And so as a result of it, if God chooses this, this is what Christianity says. There is this possibility that suffering will occur. Evil will happen. And in this process, God has a choice either to wipe it completely out, which means taking away not just free will, but all of us. Or he has the possibility of taking it and redeeming it and removing it and actually using the evil that has entered in ways that he brings restoration and redemption. God, love is then not some happy-go-lucky outlook on life that makes pleasure its goal. It is a divine love that embraces suffering as a consequence of the greater gifts of life and freedom. Real life, meaning life that is free, implies suffering. If God were to take away suffering, he would take away the precious gift of life itself. So, for a period of time, he uses it to bring about his good. You can choose whatever world system. You have to come to a place where you go, what am I going to believe? So what's the purpose in suffering? I mean, is there a purpose? God takes that which is bad and he says, I'm going to make something good. But God does this. He basically takes, and and when you say no to a child in the same way, you know, I'm not going to give you this candy right now, you're causing that child to suffer, right? Now, you don't think you are, but that child internally is going, what? I mean, I deserve this. Life revolves around me. And God says, you know, or a good parent says, I love you and I have the power to buy that candy bar, but I'm going to allow you to have, you know, what I call delayed gratification, which not many of us do well at. And God, in a way, will use, it says in James, it uses in other places, Peter, it says, God will use even the suffering in this world to produce character in you and me. You know, our whole mission statement here as a church is to help you take your next step to know, follow, and become like Jesus. That means we want to come alongside you to help you become like Jesus. It will grow in the character of who Christ is. 
And, and what's really interesting is you may be in a place right now because sometimes God actually uses suffering to awaken our hearts to him. He actually will use difficult things in our own life experience to begin to open our hearts and our, our mind and our, our eyes to his presence. And in fact, um, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And you may have in your own life at one point, or you may now, or it may be that at some point God is going to say, in the midst of the difficulty you're in, I love you. I want to be involved in your life. I want to walk with you. I want to help you grow in character so that you may move into the place that I've always intended you to be. And you may be here this morning, and God is shouting to you in the midst of a time that's really difficult. Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to go through this one. In fact, God is so great and so cool because here's this God who doesn't stand up from the world and look down at us and go, oh, those kids, they blew it again. He's not like some far removed dictator who looks at the whole population and goes, well, you know what? They're a mess. I'm forget them. I'll let them do their own thing and stands back here and just gets the fruit of whatever is being done. You know, the dictator just go ahead and, 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 and uses all the wealth to create more wealth. For himself. That's not like God. That God at one point saw what happened and through that point he's been continually seeking to intervene until he finally came to a place. Here is this God who loves you so much. He says, I see your suffering. Not only do I want to awaken you to my presence, but I actually want to be present with you. And to let you know how much I want to be present with you, I will actually step into this time of life in which we are living. And I will come in a person named Jesus. And this Jesus, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, 15, he's like a high priest who can empathize completely with us in our weaknesses, who's been tempted in every way. This Jesus expresses the heart of God. God himself becomes man in order to walk with us in suffering. And he's tempted beyond what any of us could be tempted. And, and you've got to think about that for a second. When it says that in Hebrews, the, the idea is that every one of us are tempted to a point and we usually fall at some point. Jesus never did. So he underwent more temptation than any person in this room. Because he went to the end of that temptation and had victory. And not only that, we find in Hebrews that, that Jesus came down and in this life he offered up prayers, it says in chapter 5, in petitions with fervent cries and tears to this one who could save him from death. Why, God, if you're all powerful, all good? Because God had a plan to use his life and even allowed for him to suffer so we could experience in the sense that this God has taken on full suffering. And as Jesus cries out and he learned, it says, obedience from what he suffered. And this God who is so passionately in love with you, who steps into your presence with his presence, at one point in Hebrews, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that is set before him has endured the cross. He scorns its shame. He sits down at the right hand. Now consider him. Put your mind on him. Keep your mind on him. And endure such opposition as he did from sinners. He suffered on your behalf. He died. And he took the, the sin and punishment. And he took that which was coming against you all suffering onto himself. So that you would someday be free from it all. That's what... That's what that we find out about the purpose of God. And I, I remember when I was reading this, someone said, you know what, when you think about it, um, you, you have a big question for those of you who talk about suffering and, and, you, and they, they want to make it sound glib. And they go, you, 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 there's just no compensation for any person. When you think about an innocent suffering, there's no compensation for that suffering. 
And then I just go back to that and I go, Jesus, in one sense, says for the joy set before me, I endured. I went through this for your sake out of love. I did this for you. And in doing this for you, I took on all suffering. And I did this because I knew there was something greater. I knew there was an eternity. I knew there was a presence of God now and forever that I would be able to experience. And suffering would be like this. It would be like a blip on the radar of all eternity. And I go, who, how, who, how does he know that what happens here in these moments in time won't be fully replenished? Far beyond what we could imagine. For Paul at one point says in Romans, for our current sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be someday revealed in all of us. So, you know, when people throw those kind of questions, you just got to go, well, how do you, I mean, how do you know that? Well, you speak with such authority. And you may be there. And I invite you, wherever you're at, in your journey with God, I don't care if you've been a long-time believer and walked for a long time, and you've never maybe gotten to the point where you go, it's okay to expose what's going on in my heart. It's good to be present with what's going on, because that's the only way that you can find, as Lindsay said, healing for your soul. Okay, so the power of choice. Trust or doubt. Every one of us, that's what, when we've been given free will, we have the power to choose trust or doubt. In the face of evil, in the midst of pain, every person has a choice. And here's the temptation of evil it is always to distrust God. In the very garden itself, one of the first things you find is evil enters in. That's what we're told in Genesis. We don't know about its origin, but we know its entrance. Evil enters in and says, can you really trust God that you can't take from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I have to tell you, you know, you have you have the opportunity throughout life to move to a place of trust or to remain in a place of doubt. And and I want to encourage you because we are actually made as human beings with the drive to understand. There is nothing wrong with your seeking to understand what's going on here. But here's what I want to share with you. You know, when you look at Adam and Eve, when they're in the garden, God puts them in, in the garden. He says, you rule because he wants you to understand. He wants you to develop it. He, you know, you're to, to rule and to reign over this garden. We're, we're created this way. We're created to investigate. We're created to understand, to make things develop and grow. We're created to try and make sense out of things. And, and it's really interesting. When a baby is born, they open their eyes. They start looking around trying to make order into their world. It's just a natural thing. So what you're doing is natural. But here's what I think is something that is not natural. Christopher Wright says it this way. He says, when you apply your rational skill to every arena of life, there is potentially, as we see in the garden, which God seems to say, don't take from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a limitation to what we can truly understand. And one of those things, he says, is this whole substance of evil. God, with his infinite perspective, says, right, and for reasons known only to himself, knows that we are finite beings and cannot, indeed must not, make sense of evil. For the final truth is that evil does not make sense. Evil has no proper place within creation. I love this. It has no validity, no truth, no integrity. It does not intrinsically belong to the creation as God originally made it, nor will it belong to the creation as God will ultimately redeem it. It cannot and must not be integrated into the universe as a rational, legitimized, legitimated, justified part of reality. Evil is there, is not there to be understood, but to be resisted and ultimately expelled. Evil is beyond our understanding because it is not part of the ultimate reality that God in his perfect wisdom and utter truthfulness intends 
us to understand. So God has withheld its secrets from his own revelation and our research, which forces us to say there's a territory, there's a place we come to, there's a tree that we stand before. And he says, I I just don't want you to eat of that right now. And there may be a good reason. The only way I can explain it is this. How many of you would let a three-year-old watch a horror film? It would taint it. It couldn't handle it. Could it be that we can't make sense of it on this side of eternity because we just couldn't handle it? We don't understand it. And he says it doesn't make sense. You won't. So at a certain point, there's a limit. There's a mystery. And it has to sit with him. It has to sit with him. There's a movie, Patton, General Patton, at one point. Uh, remember the movie Patton? And, and at one point, Patton's wrestling with the fact that he's been set aside. He's in England. He's been disciplined because he slapped a field, uh, in, in a field hospital a soldier. And he had great victories in Sicily and in Africa. And he's a man of action. He wanted to get going. And, and at one point, General Bradley comes up to him, Omar Bradley, and says to him, you know what? I've heard word that you're going to be given a, a really um, crucial assignment as we move into the European theater. And he was really pumped and excited about it. And he started to push into him and he, he kind of, because he's a man of action. He wanted to know. And, and Bradley said to him, I don't know anything more than that. But I do know this, that that General George Marshall's making that decision. And here's, here's what he said when he heard his fate lay in the hands of Marshall. He calmed down and he said, he's a good man. At least he's a fair man. I'll, sit, I'll let it sit with him. I'll just let it sit with him. And he said this based on the knowledge of who Marshall is and in the way that Marshall had composed himself. And in my heart, when I've wrestled with this, I finally come to a place in my own heart where I said, you know, God, I just have to, I could either live my life in doubt or I can begin to just trust and say, from what I understand, you're a revelation of Jesus is a God who is perfectly loving, so good. And not only that, you're just. You don't let sin take its course. You'll ultimately reject it and, 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 and get rid of it. And, and you will be completely fair in this whole thing. I will just let this sit with you. And I'm going to trust you and move into you. And then there's another choice that you have to make. You have the power to make this choice. Because what happens is this. In the face of evil, if you've been touched by evil, not only can it cause you to doubt and say, I'm just going to live my rest of my life in doubt, but you can move to a place where you begin to start to hate. You not only hate the person who's done it, you hate anything around it that's like it. And it's just our natural tendency. And then there's people in this world who somehow face evil, are touched by it. Like a lady named Alice Sumner, who was 110 years old, who went through the Holocaust experience, lost all kinds of her family. And then you hear her story like this. My world is music. I am not interested in anything else. This is Bach. I'm full of joy in my household. I'm the only one who is laughing. Nobody laughs here in this house. I can say uh, without hesitation that the cello saved my life because I knew what was going on in Auschwitz. So I became a member of this orchestra, which was a completely life-saving because as long as they wanted music, they couldn't put us in the gas chamber. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of logic in the Germans. I knew that we will play. And I was thinking, when we can play, it can't be so terrible. 
The music, the music. Music is in the first place of art. It brings us on an island with peace, beauty and love. You know, it's interesting in her story, and she passed away this last year, but in her story, it says, despite all that had fallen her, Alice insists that she has never, ever hated the Nazis and she never will. And some think of her as kind of like a saint who's learned how to forgive. She's just a person who's learned how to trust and experience joy and then begin to love. She says this. This is so biblical. Alice is, you know, when they say that she's kind of this, this saint who's been tolerant and compassionate, she's just far more pragmatic. She says she has never seen enough in her life to know. And she's, she's seen enough in her life to know all too well that hatred eats the soul of the hater. Not the hated. And then there's this whole idea of doing good. Because in the face of evil, touched by evil, not only do you want to distrust, and not only do you want to move to a place where you want to hate, but you then can move to a place where you want to retaliate. You want to do evil because of the evils that's done to you. And, and, and God says you have, another, you have a choice. You can, you can understand and you can trust and, and move into this place and recognize some of these limits. And as you do, as you trust me, and, and as you move into this and, and you begin to um, love, I, I call you to do good. I call you to do good. And, and I don't think we realize the way God has created us, how important an individual who chooses to do good, the impact that has on the world. I was reading an article by a, a developmental psychologist, this guy named Howard Gartner, who is speaking about that he has this whole idea of multiple intelligences in the sense of, of the collective. But at one point he says, but never forget the individual. He says, in a planet occupied now by seven billion inhabitants, I'm amazed by the difference one human being can make. Think of classical music without Mozart or Stravinsky or a painting without Rembrandt or Picasso or drama without Shakespeare or Beckett or the incredible contributions of a Michelangelo or a Leonardo. Despite the laudatory efforts of scientists to ferret out patterns in the human behavior, these collective patterns, he says, I continue to be struck by the impact of single individuals or small groups working against the odds. When you look at all the evil and you go, what, what can we do? As scholars, we cannot and should not sweep these instances under the investigative rug. We should bear in mind, as Margaret Mead a famous anthropologist has said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. It is the only thing that ever has. And I just challenge you as you trust, as you rely on God to love and forgive, that you begin to start doing those individual acts of goodness because they change the world. As you see demonstrated in this, in this story. Emily loved mornings. She loved making art. Emily loved being fancy. December 2012, Robbie and I, for Christmas for the girls, were going to transform this little crawl space into a playroom. Emily got the idea to give to children who didn't have toys. She went into her room with a box, 
and began to fill the whole thing up with toys. This became her blessed project. After December 14th and the tragedy at Sandy Hook, the crawl space became very painful to even acknowledge. Never to have seen her face light up with excitement. It was too hard. Every time I'd see the box, I couldn't bring myself to do anything with it. It served as a painful reminder that there was this loss of one of the most giving and selfless people I had ever met. It's hard to imagine a world that didn't have that goodness and that selflessness in it. We received a box from the police of Emily's clothing that she was wearing. I had to see how she was hurt. And that pain is indescribable. I felt so consumed with how evil can be so powerful and the evil one. <laughs> one day, the oil truck just showed up. I never called for our oil tank to be filled. This kindness, given quietly from a family I hardly knew, was one of so many. The letters started to pour in. In these letters, over and over, were accounts of the power of God's love. There was an overwhelming response from millions of people, well-wishers, people praying for us, people sending us things. I truly started to feel this obvious strength and power that lifted me, that lifted my family. It was time to finish what she wanted done. Where was your God when this happened? Why didn't he stop it? God allowed others to kill his son. He allows for us all to make our own choices, good and bad, because that's the only way good can be in us, is if we freely choose it over all else. Evil didn't win that day. We'll carry on that love like she had. It's quiet, it's not on the news, it takes effort to find. But what I've realized through all this is how strong and how big God's love really is.